If you have your Bibles, you can be opening them to Genesis chapter 23. And go ahead and find your place there, verse 19. Uh, and that will be, uh, I think, page 22 in your pew Bible. So uh, right there at the front, Genesis chapter 23, verse 19, page 22 in your pew Bible if you need that. As you can see, our scripture verses, our chapters 23 through 25, we are, I'm not going to ask you to stand uh, as I read that, I'm not going to read it either. So you just, you know, a sigh of relief from the congregation. We'll read a few verses from each chapter to illustrate the point here this morning. Uh, but if you have found that passage, chapter 23, verse 19, will you stand with me in the honor of reading of God's Word this morning? The Word of God says this, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Let's pray together. Father, we are looking forward to hearing from your word and looking forward to learning from one of these great servants of yours, the man of faith, Abraham. And I pray today that we will take his lessons that he's learned in his life, Lord, and take them forward in ours and try to do our best to live in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so here we find Abraham, not quite at death's door, but at the end of life, he, he recognizes that he's in the twilight of life. And with the death of his beloved wife, Sarah, he begins to set his house in order and to prepare for his own death. So he sets about the task of sowing seeds in hope because of his great faith in God. Now you see the title of my sermon, Sowing in the Cemetery, Abraham's Enduring Faith. And this, this message is about the place where Abraham chooses to sow his seeds. And that is a prominent biblical theme, especially picked up in the New Testament, of sowing the seed of our bodies into the ground and hoping in the resurrection so Abraham sets about sowing these seeds. Now, the truth is, Abraham has made his share of mistakes in life. He's not a perfect person. And if you look through the Bible, those who you might think are perfect, we just don't know everything about them, okay? There are no perfect people except Jesus Christ himself. Abraham is a servant of God, but he's not perfect. But as the Apostle Paul would later on say to Timothy, it's not about how you finish or how you begin the race, but how you finish. When he says these words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So how do you summarize Abraham's life of faith by showing how he finished the race? How does he finish the race? Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians would say to run in such a way that you might win. Now, Abraham had failures along the way, but he finished strong. I would wager, and I would say that Abraham sprinted to the end. He finished strong. He ran in such a way as to win. And how do you run in such a way to win? You don't lollygag. You don't, you don't meander your way to the finish line. You put your head down and sprint. And that's what Abraham does. The Bible is full of descriptions of Abraham's faith. 
If you haven't read it in a while, Romans chapter 4 is a, is a testament to Abraham's faith. Over and over again it says things like his faith was counted as righteousness and those who follow in his footsteps follow in the footsteps of faith. In Galatians he is simply called the man of faith. That's one of my favorite nicknames in all of the Bible, the man of faith. In some translations it says the believer, but still, the man of faith. That's a nickname to aspire to. Man of faith, woman of faith. And I'd encourage you this morning to consider whether or not that moniker fits you, whether or not you'd like it to, when you're in Abraham's position, sprinting towards the end of life, Do you wish that those standing around could be saying the same thing of you, could say something like, now there's a man of faith. There's a woman of faith. Let's look now and see how Abraham sowed the seeds of hope in faith. First, here we are in chapter 23. Abraham sows his family in hope. He sows his family in hope. He buries his beloved wife, Sarah, and leaves her facing the promised land. You know, Abraham makes a very unusual choice not to bury Sarah in her home country where she came from, but but to bury her here where they are now in this strange land where they are foreigners and they don't even own a scrap of land. He chose not to take her body to be buried back with her own people, but to bury her in the strange land, which also happens to be the promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. Abraham was planting a seed in hope. He was sowing a seed in hope of a great harvest to come, and at this point in time, a harvest that he knew he would never see. That's hope. That's faith. But, but I think there's even more significance here than it first meets the eye. Let's read our verse again. Verse 19 of chapter 23. After this, Abraham buried Sarah and his, wa- buried Sarah, his wife excuse me, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, and the land of Canaan. Now, the, the word translated east of here is a, is a multifaceted Hebrew word. As a matter of fact, if you read in different translations, you'll get all kinds of of usages here in the King James and the New King James in the Pew Bible. It says, before Mamre. In the New International Version, it says, near Mamre. The New American Standard says, facing Mamre. Now, which one is correct? Well, the tricky part is they're all kind of correct because this word has a lot of different meanings. Uh, The word is panim in Hebrew, and that word literally means face. And it's used as a figure of speech to talk about direction. So it does make sense. Something I'm facing is near me or before me. But I think in this text right here, I think the New American Standard gets it right when it says facing Mamre because it describes what Abraham is doing. Uh, I don't think, in other words, that this is a mistake that the word is here. We don't really need to know directions. We don't know where you know, Joseph's bones were east of, west of, facing this and that. We know where they are. Uh, we don't see directions to burial plots often in the scriptures. I don't think this direction was recorded for our nautical fascination, but for a theological purpose. It's here to tell us something. See, when Abraham places Sarah 
in the ground facing the promised land of God. He is showing that he fully believes that this is the first scene she will see when she rises up out of the grave. It's a theological statement. He's showing his faith and his early understanding of the doctrine of the resurrection of God's people. He wishes for his wife's first glance upon resurrection to be the fulfillment of God's promises. See, Sarah, I told you, you can believe in God. When she opens her eyes, she's going to see the promises of God fulfilled as she is in the promised land. And Abraham is believing God that when the resurrection comes, this land will belong to them. It's not much different, actually, than our custom of burying our loved ones facing the eastern sky. For some of you, that might just be an interesting custom. Some of you may not even know that we do that. But for those of you who do know why, it's a powerful testimony. Anybody know why we do that? You can say it, that's all right. Where's Jesus going to show up when he comes? In the eastern sky. It's the same thing. We're burying our dead in the hope of a promise of resurrection so that when Jesus breaks forth that eastern sky, our loved ones, that's the first thing they will see when they rise from the dead in the resurrection. Now, you and I know in reality it doesn't really matter if you're buried at sea or cremated or buried upside down. When Jesus comes, they're going to be caught up with Him in the air. But it's a symbol. It is a simple yet profound witness to the world. And to me, when I found that out as a young man, boy, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks that everywhere I've been in my entire life, every graveyard I've ever seen, every cemetery is a witness to the promise, to the hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ. Every one of them. And in the same way, Abraham shows his expectation of God's fulfilled promises by burying Sarah in the land of promise, facing the promises of God to come. Well, not only do we see such a great faith in the interment of his wife, but also in the betrothal of his son. You see, secondly, Abraham sows the future in hope. Now, really, you might say, if it wasn't God we're talking about, he's gambling, he's rolling the dice. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. You'll see what I mean in a moment. But he sows the future in hope and faith. Abraham, in chapter 24 of Genesis, risks it all for Isaac to be wed to a kinsman and not a Canaanite. Now, someone of the lineage of his own household, of his wife's household, actually. But, but in other words, not the foreigners, not, not the, the people in the land, not the Canaanites. He is holding to the promise of God for a blessing of people from his own line. He has a servant named Eleazar, which he trusts very much. And he tells Eleazar to go back to Hebron and find a wife. Don't let Isaac go. Listen, in chapter 24, verses 6 and 7, it says this, Abraham said to him, that is Eleazar, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. You see, Abraham did not want Isaac to go back and be tempted to stay. 
and say, why am I staying in this land full of strangers where nobody likes me, nobody knows me, when I can go here and be surrounded by my family and my people? Sure, God may have promised that land to me, but there's nothing for me there. There's nothing for me there in Canaan. What am I doing there? And so he didn't want Isaac to be tempted with that, and so he sends Eleazar back. Abraham's faith in God's promise is seen in the very method he uses to wed his only son, who was the hope for all the promises. You see, he wouldn't let him go back home because he wanted to honor the land promises of God. Even keeping Isaac in Canaan is a symbol of faith in God. There is not going to be a time in Abraham's mind when the people of God abandon Canaan. If Isaac leaves, then who's left? The people of God have left. And he says, we are not going to abandon this land. And Isaac is going to stay. And he is going to be the living embodiment of God's promise. Even if it's just one man, this is the down payment of the promise of God. He goes to great lengths, however, to provide a wife or to to find a wife of his own people and not the Canaanites because he believes in the promise of descendants. Eleazar's instructions are very clear. In verse 8, he says, But if the woman is not willing to come with you, then you'll be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. In other words, Isaac will have a wife for my people or he will have no wife at all. And let me, let me just kind of paint the picture for you here. If Isaac doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have children of promise to carry on the lineage. And if he doesn't have children, there's no people of God. There's no uh, descendants like the, the stars in the sky. But he says to Eleazar, if you can't find a wife from there, then don't worry about it. You're free from your oath. Now, you see, what's funny here is the old Abraham, the old Abraham who, who made some former mistakes in the past would have probably said to Eleazar, now, He's got to find a wife. You start here, but if you can't find one, I mean, we've got to help God out. I mean, we just got to help God out and, and get him a wife some way, somewhere, somehow. Because without a wife, we don't have the promises. The old Abraham would have made that mistake like he did with Hagar. Going into Sarah's handmaiden and saying, we've got we to gotta help God out here. I know he said he's going to provide a son, but... Time's a ticking. We've got to get the show on the road. God's running out of time, so let's you and I help him out, and, and we'll provide a son in a way that, that he didn't design, in a way that he didn't command, in a way that is disobedient to him. And we'll help God with his promises. See, with Hagar, Abraham believed God's promise. He just didn't trust in his power to carry him out. And in his own strength, he tried to accomplish what it looks like God could not do. You ever do that? You ever lose sight of faith and try to help God out? We get worried that God can't do what He's supposed to be able to do. And so we come around behind and say, well, if God can't do it, let me try. Let me muster up my strength. Let me do it the way I can do it. I know this is the wrong way to do it, but it seems like the only way to accomplish what God wants done. You see, Abraham learned from his mistakes. He learned from his mistakes. And he grew. 
And he became faithful. Anybody know how old he was when he made these mistakes, by the way? Probably not. I didn't until I looked. He was 86 years old. He was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So in other words, you're never too old to learn from your mistakes. Right? You're never too old to learn from your mistakes and keep growing. Abraham was still making teenager mistakes in his 80s. But he was, he was getting over and growing. So Abraham is showing his faith in God's power to accomplish his promises no matter what. In Isaac's life, he's showing faith in God's power to accomplish his promises. Thirdly, Abraham shows faith by sowing his own body in hope. He has sown his family. He has sown his future. Now he sows his own body in chapter 25. See, Abraham died having never seen God's promises. He never laid an eye on any of the promises of any measure. But he died as a man of faith, having no doubt. Now, I'm not saying never having any doubts, but he died with no doubts. He finished strong. In verse 20, chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, really, verse 8. Really, verse 8 and 9. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. Some translations say a ripe old age. An old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, that is the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. Now, I want to follow a different story briefly here. I want to take a little bit of a tangent. Um, Because at this point in the story, we're going to kind of fast forward a little bit. Talk about faith of a different kind. We'll, We'll circle back to Abraham. But this is a powerful place to stop because I want to follow the story here of Ishmael. The plight of Ishmael, who is here in this verse called a son. But you see, up to this point, Ishmael is treated as an outcast. He is treated as an exile. He is written off and stripped of his rights of sonship because of his illegitimate birth, because he was born in sin and in iniquity, and he is exiled and put far away from the family of God. Even God himself discounts Ishmael as a son of Abraham in chapter 22. He tells Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go up the mountain, offer him as a sacrifice. Ishmael is already born at this point. And yet he says, Isaac, your only son. In the New Testament, we have that thought echoed. And the writer of Hebrews calls Isaac his only son again. So even though he has biological children, Ishmael has been stripped of the rights of sonship. He's been exiled from the family of God. And yet here at the graveside of the great patriarch, Ishmael, the mistreated, maligned, illegitimate son, is gathered together with his brother, the cherished son of promise, and once again counted as a son of Abraham. And I love this picture. It's just a glimpse, I think. But I love this picture. 
Because it foreshadows something that happens much later on. A day is coming when the Father again unites the outcasts, children of God, the exiles who have been put far away, and the Son of Promise. And again, it's over a graveside, an empty one at that point. There's so much to explore in the duality of Ishmael and Isaac. We, keep, we don't have time, but let me summarize here. What I think is, as Christians, we read the Bible and we always think we're the good guys. <laughs> and in this case, we read and we've read through this story and we think, well, obviously, we're Isaac. Isaac represents us, the sons of promise. And I don't think that's the case. I think you and I are Ishmael. I think you and I are born outside of, of the family of God. We're, we're born in shame, exiled from the family of God. But how sweet it is that the promise of God does not abandon the outcast son forever. And I think this is a little glimpse into the redemption of the people of God. The outcast is counted once again as a son God is demonstrating that in, in, in Ishmael here. I think it's really powerful because after the story, they go back to being enemies. You know, it's business as usual. There is no major reconciliation, and Isaac is, and Ishmael grafted back into the family, and we continue on. That's not what happens. This is just a momentary glimpse of what is going to happen later on. Because even though Ishmael is Abraham's biological child and stripped of the rights of sonship, when Jesus comes along, the apostle John says something so powerful and yet sometimes overlooked when he says in first chapter of John, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Have you ever thought about that? You don't have the right to be a child of God. God couldn't just adopt you. You don't have the right to be there. You don't have the right to be in that family. You've been exiled. You've been, you're the, the son of illegitimacy. God has to first reinstate our rights to make us a child of God. And that is what He does. So in Ishmael, we see this kind of culmination of the rights being restored the family of God. Now, now going back to Abraham. Abraham believed that God will fulfill all his promises right up to the end and really after the end, didn't he? Even in his death. His death preached something. His death preached something. It preached that he believed in the promises of God. And in case you're wondering... Uh, the words here, east of Mamre, is the same word. It means the same thing. Abraham sowed his own body in the grave facing the promises of God. And this defined who he was. Literally defined who he was. He is called the man of faith. When you look up Abraham in the dictionary, it says, man of faith. That's who he is. He believed right up until the end. I have a little confession to make here. As I've been preaching, I've said something a couple of times that wasn't entirely accurate. And I, 
if you were following along with me, maybe you, you, you picked up on that. Um, I said Abraham didn't own any property in the promised land passed to Isaac. That's not entirely accurate. Abraham does own one small parcel in the promised land. He, he owns one small parcel as a down payment of the promises of God to come. The only possession that Abraham owns in the entire promised land is a grave plot. That's it. This is the down payment, a burial plot, just big enough to sow the seeds of hope. And so here we have Abraham dying, going into, into eternity, demonstrating such faith, and the only thing that he has is one son in a grave plot when God has promised him descendants like the nations in the entire land of Canaan. And yet he believes God. He left no land to Isaac but a burial plot to sow the seeds. And if you continue reading, Abraham's family continued that tradition for a while at least. Just like Abraham though, you and I have a down payment. Now we don't hopefully own just a grave plot, but, but we have a down payment. The Spirit of God indwells us. And that is our down payment. Not to God, but from God. That one day when the Spirit of God shall see the face of Jesus you know, here on earth, we will be reunited, we will be changed, resurrected, and the down payment of God will be paid in full immediately. In the heavens, new heavens and new earth. So, the question for us, how do we respond today to this amazing story of faith? There's... Just a couple simple things I want to say to you, very simply. First is this, our obedience must demonstrate our trust in God. You could even say it the other other way around. You demonstrate trust in God by obedience. The writer of Hebrews tells us, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place. Later on in the same chapter, by faith when he was tested, He offered up Isaac. You see, Abraham's faith had a practical outworking in his life. Does yours? Does what you believe change how you behave? Does it help you make decisions? Does your life reflect a trust in God? Do we trust Him enough to obey His commands? How about this? Even when they're difficult. (laughs) Sure, we can obey His commands when they're easy, do we trust Him enough to obey when it's difficult? Even if those around us wonder, what's gotten into him or her? Or or, or it makes enemies, friends. Do we trust God enough to obey Him? Abraham did. And I'm here to tell you that if your life is not characterized by obedience, it's probably not a life of faith. Now, I'm not saying you believe uh, or that you obey every single command. Obviously, we don't. But this is one of the ways the Scripture tells us we can know whether or not we've been changed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that whether or not we have forgiveness, whether or not the Holy Spirit indwells us, whether or not we've been saved, is do you obey the commands of Jesus? He said, if you love me, you obey my commands. 
If we don't obey the Lord, we don't trust Him, we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. So the first thing we do is a life of faith calls us to, commands us, propels us to obedience. And I would ask you to just ponder that in your own life. Are you walking in faith and obedience today? And secondly, because Abraham was a man of faith, he was also a man of hope. A man of hope. Abraham's faith caused him to believe the promises of God would come without a shadow of a doubt. That's why he buried Sarah in the promised land. That's why he sent uh, for a wife and Isaac and didn't let him leave the promised land. That's why he buried, or had himself buried, almost said buried himself. That'd be a trick. Why he had himself buried in the promised land. Abraham had a hope that was sure. And I'm not talking about, a, I hope I really get that one day. I, I hope I can retire early. You know, I hope my kid doesn't, you know, uh, marry somebody that I hate or I, I hope that I don't wreck my new car. No, not that kind of hope, but a hope that is sure and secure. As the old song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Is that your hope today? If it is, then we're like Abraham and we can face the future with confidence. And with faith. We're confident in God's provision and confident in His power to fulfill His promises. And let me tell you, God's promises are sure. There's an old Stephen Curtis Chapman song that has one line in it that uh, is worth the album. I don't even know what album it is, but he says, Tomorrow morning if you wake up and the sun does not appear, I will be here. I think he's talking to his wife in this album, but you can see the point. This is how sure God's promises are to us. Literally, if you wake up tomorrow and there is no sunshine, you can still bank on the promises of God. They're going to be here no matter what. And what are the promises of God? Eternal life, yes. New heavens, new earth, yes. Closer to home, how about this? If you repent of your sins, He promises He's faithful and just to forgive you. How about this? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If anyone believes that Jesus' blood has paid their sin debt, and you'll be justified. God promises forgiveness of sins. He promises justification. That is the expungement of your record. Peace, righteousness, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He'll never leave you or forsake you. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Anything you ask in my name, I will give to you. Life everlasting, victory over death, hell, Satan, eternal peace and joy with Him. So not much. Not much. Just all that and more. These are the sure promises of God. Do you believe in the power of God to accomplish these promises? That's really the question at hand. Do we believe today? In just a moment, we're going to offer an invitation. It will be time to sing and for you to reflect and contemplate. And it's also a time, if you'd like to come forward and speak to me, I'll be standing down here. If you have questions about what it means to put your hope and faith in Jesus. Or if you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you want to learn more about membership here at First Baptist Church, this is a great time to come forward and start that discussion as well. We're going to pray now in just a moment. After we pray, we'll sing that song and you come. Let's pray together.
Father, we, we know that we don't have the strongest faith, the measure of faith, but we also know that you fill in the gaps of our faith. And we pray that you would strengthen it like Abraham, Lord, that you would, you would strengthen our faith to be able to live in light of your promises with such a conviction that we can live this life with confidence and joy and peace. Lord, and I pray today, if there's one here today that does not know you, they've never trusted, but their faith in you for salvation, that today would be the day. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.